Section 16 of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates by Howard Pyle. Compiled by Merle Johnson. Section 16. Captain Scarfield. Part 2. Subchapter 3. Nighttime in the tropics descends with a surprising rapidity. At one moment the earth is shining with the brightness of the twilight. The next, as it were, all things are suddenly swallowed into a gulf of darkness. The particular night of which this story treats was not entirely clear. The time of year was about the approach of the rainy season, and the tepid tropical clouds added obscurity to the darkness of the sky, so that the night fell with even more startling quickness than usual. The blackness was very dense. Now and then a group of drifting stars swam out of a rift in the vapours, but the night was curiously silent and of a velvety darkness. As the obscurity had deepened, Mannering had ordered lanterns to be lighted and slung to the shrouds and to the stays, and the faint yellow of their illumination lighted the level white of the snug little war-vessel, gleaming here and there in a star-like spark upon the brass trimmings, and causing the rows of cannons to assume curiously gigantic proportions. For some reason Mannering was possessed by a strange, uneasy feeling. He walked restlessly up and down the deck for a time, and then, still full of anxieties for he knew not what, went into his cabin to finish writing up his log for the day. He unstrapped his cutlass and laid it up on the table, lighted his pipe at the lantern, and was about preparing to lay aside his coat, when word was brought to him that the captain of the trading-schooner was come alongside, and had some private information to communicate to him. Mannering surmised in an instant that the trader's visit related somehow to news of Captain Scarfield, and as immediately, in the relief of something positive to face, all of his feeling of restlessness vanished like a shadow of mist. He gave orders that Captain Cooper should be immediately shown into the cabin, and in a few moments the tall, angular form of the Quaker skipper appeared in the narrow, lantern-lighted space. Mannering at once saw that his visitor was strangely agitated and disturbed. He had taken off his hat, and shining beads of perspiration had gathered and stood clustered upon his forehead. He did not reply to Mannering's greeting. He did not, indeed, seem to hear it. But he came directly forward to the table, and stood leaning with one hand upon the open log-book in which the lieutenant had just been writing. Mannering had reseated himself at the head of the table, and the tall figure of the skipper stood looking down at him as from a considerable height. "'James Mannering,' he said, "'I promise thee to report if I had news of the pirate. Is thee ready now to hear my news?' There was something so strange in his agitation that it began to infect Mannering with a feeling somewhat akin to that which appeared to disturb his visitor. "'I know not what you mean, sir,' he cried, by asking if I care to hear your news. At this moment I would rather have news of that scoundrel than to have anything I know of in the world.' "'Thou would? Thou would?' cried the other, with mounting agitation. "'Is thee in such haste to meet him as all that? Very well, very well, then.' Suppose I could bring thee face to face with him. What then, eh? Eh? Face to face with him, James Mannering. The thought instantly flashed into Mannering's mind that the pirate had returned to the island, that perhaps at that moment he was somewhere near at hand. I do not understand you, sir, he cried. Do you mean to tell me that you know where the villain is? If so, lose no time in informing me, 
for every instant of delay may mean his chance of again escaping. "'No danger of that,' the other declared, vehemently. "'No danger of that. I'll tell thee where he is, and I'll bring thee to him quick enough.' And as he spoke, he thumped his fist against the open logbook. In the vehemence of his growing excitement, his eyes appeared to shine green in the lanthorn light, and the sweat that had stood in it beats upon his forehead was now running in streams down his face. One drop hung like a jewel to the tip of his beak-like nose. He came a step nearer to Mannering, and bent forward toward him, and there was something so strange and ominous in his bearing that the lieutenant instinctively drew back a little where he sat. "'Captain Scarfield sent something to you,' said Eliezer, almost in a raucous voice. "'Something that you will be surprised to see.' And the lapse in his speech from the Quaker thee to the plural you struck Mannering as singularly strange. As he was speaking, Eliezer was fumbling in a pocket of his long-tailed drab coat, and presently he brought something forth that gleamed in the lanthorn light. The next moment Mannering saw leveled directly in his face the round and hollow nozzle of a pistol. There was an instant of dead silence, and then— "'I am the man you seek,' said Eliezer Cooper, in a tense and breathless voice. The whole thing had happened so instantaneously and unexpectedly— but for the moment Mannering sat like one petrified. Had a thunderbolt fallen from the skyland sky and burst at his feet, he could not have been more stunned. He was like one held in the meshes of a horrid nightmare, and he gazed as through a mist of impossibility into the lineament of the well-known sober face, now transformed as from within into the aspect of a devil. That face, now ashy white, was distorted into a diabolical grin, the teeth glistened in the lamplight. The brows, twisted into a tense and convulsed frown, were drawn down into black shadows, through which the eyes burned a baleful green like the eyes of a wild animal driven to bay. Again he spoke in the same breathless voice. "'I am John Scarfield. Look at me, then, if you want to see a pirate.' Again there was a little time of silence, through which Mannering heard his watch ticking loudly from where it hung against the bulkhead. Then once more the other began speaking. "'You would chase me out of the West Indies, would you? God, you! What are you come to now? You're caught in your own trap, and you'll squeal loud enough before you get out of it. Speak a word, or make a movement, and I'll blow your brains out against the partition behind you. Listen to what I say, or you are a dead man. Sing out an order instantly for my mate and my bosom to come here to the cabin, and be quick about it, for my finger's on the trigger.' It's only a pull to shut your mouth forever. It was astonishing to Mannering, in afterward thinking about it all, how quickly his mind began to recover its steadiness after that first astonishing shock. Even as the other was speaking, he discovered that his brain was becoming clarified to a wonderful lucidity. His thoughts were becoming rearranged, and with a marvellous activity and an alertness he had never before experienced. He knew that if he moved to escape or uttered any outcry, he would be instantly a dead man, for the circle of the pistol-barrel was directed full against his forehead, and with the steadiness of a rock. If he could but for an instant divert that fixed and deadly attention, he might still have a chance for life. With the thought, an inspiration burst into his mind, and he instantly put it into execution. Thought, inspiration, and action, as in a flash, were one. He must make the other turn aside his deadly gaze and instantly he roared out in a voice that stunned his own ears, "'Strike, bosun! Strike, quick!' 
taken by surprise, and thinking, doubtless, that another enemy stood behind him, the pirate swung around like a flash with his pistol levelled against the blank boarding. Equally upon the instant, he saw the trick that had been played upon him, and in a second flash had turned again. The turn and return had occupied but a moment of time, but that moment, thanks to the readiness of his own invention, had undoubtedly saved Mannering's life. As the other turned away his gaze for that brief instant, Mannering leapt forward and upon him. There was a flashing flame of fire as the pistol was discharged, and a deafening detonation that seemed to split his brain. For a moment, with reeling senses, he supposed himself to have been shot. The next he knew he had escaped. With the energy of despair, he swung his enemy around, and drove him with prodigious violence against the corner of the table. The pirate emitted a grunting cry, and then they fell together, mannering upon the top, and the pistol clattered with them to the floor in their fall. Even as he fell, Mannering roared in a voice of thunder, "'All hands repel boarders!' and then again, "'All hands repel boarders!' Whether hurt by the table-edge or not, the fallen pirate struggled as though possessed of forty devils, and in a moment or two Mannering saw the shine of a long keen knife that he had drawn from somewhere about his person. The lieutenant caught him by the wrist, but the other's muscles were as though made of steel. They both fought in despairing silence the one to carry out his frustrated purposes to kill, the other to save his life. Again and again Mannering felt the knife had been thrust against him, piercing once his arm, once his shoulder, and again his neck. He felt the warm blood streaming down his arm and body, and looked about him in despair. The pistol lay near upon the deck of the cabin. Still holding the other by the wrist as he could, Mannering snatched up the empty weapon, and struck once and again at the bold, narrow forehead beneath him. A third blow he delivered with all the force he could command, and then, with a violent and convulsive throw, the straining muscles beneath him relaxed and grew limp, and the fight was won. Through all the struggle he had been aware of the shouts of voices, of trampling of feet and discharge of firearms, and the thought came to him, even through his own danger, that the Yankee was being assaulted by the pirates. As he felt the struggling form beneath him loosen and dissolve into quietude, he leaped up, and snatching his cutlass, which still lay upon the table, rushed out upon the deck, leaving the stricken form lying twitching upon the floor behind him. It was a fortunate thing that he had set double watches, and prepared himself for some attack from the pirates, otherwise the Yankee would certainly have been lost. As it was, the surprise was so overwhelming that the pirates, who had been concealed in the large whaleboat that had come alongside, were not only able to gain a foothold upon the deck, but for a time it seemed as though they would drive the crew of the brig below the hatches. But as Mannering, streaming with blood, rushed out upon the deck, the pirates became immediately aware that their own captain must have been overpowered, and in an instant their desperate energy began to evaporate. One or two jumped overboard. One, who seemed to be the mate, fell dead from a pistol-shot, and then, in the turn of a hand, there was a rush of a retreat, and a vision of leaping forms in the dusky light of the lanterns, and a sound of splashing in the water below. The crew of the Yankee continued firing at the phosphorescent wakes of the swimming bodies, but whether with effect it was impossible at the time to tell. Subchapter 4 The pirate captain did not die immediately. He lingered for three or four days, now and then unconscious, now and then semi-conscious, but always deliriously wandering. All the while he thus lay dying, the mulatto woman, with whom he had lived in this part of his extraordinary dual existence, nursed and cared for him with such rude attentions as the surroundings afforded. In the wanderings of his mind the same duality of life followed him. 
Now and then he would appear the calm, sober, self-contained, well-ordered member of a peaceful society that his friends in his faraway home knew him to be. At other times the nether part of his nature would leap up into life like a wild beast, furious and gnashing. At the one time he talked evenly and clearly of peaceful things. At the other time he blasphemed and hooted with fury. Several times Mannering, though racked by his own wounds, sat beside the dying man through the silent watches of the tropical nights. Oftentimes upon these occasions, as he looked at the thin, lean face babbling and talking so aimlessly, he wondered what it all meant. Could it have been madness, madness in which the separate entities of good and bad each had, in its turn, a perfect and distinct existence? He chose to think that this was the case. Who, within his inner consciousness, does not feel that same ferine, savage man struggling against the stern, adamantine bonds of morality and decorum? Were those bonds burst asunder, as it was with this man, might not the wild beast rush forth, as it had rushed forth in him, to rend and to tear? Such were the questions that Mannering asked himself. And how had it all come about? By what easy gradations had the respectable Quaker skipper descended from the decorum of his home life, step by step, into such a gulf of iniquity? Many such thoughts passed through Mannering's mind, and he pondered them through the still reaches of the tropical nights, while he sat watching the pirate captain struggle out of the world he had so long burdened. At last the poor wretch died, and the earth was well quit of one of its torments. A systematic search was made through the island for the scattered crew, but none was captured. Either there were some secret hiding-places upon the island, which was not very likely, or else they had escaped in boats hidden somewhere among the tropical foliage. At any rate, they were gone. Nor, search as he would, could Mannering find a trace of any of the pirate treasure. After the pirate's death and under close questioning, the weeping mulatto woman so far broke down as to confess in broken English that Captain Scarfield had taken a quantity of silver money aboard his vessel, but either she was mistaken, or else the pirates had taken it thence again, and had hidden it somewhere else. Nor would the treasure ever have been found but for a most fortuitous accident. Mannering had given orders that the Eliza Cooper was to be burned, and a party was detailed to carry the order into execution. At this, the cook of the Yankee came petitioning for some of the Wilmington and Brandywine flour to make some plum duff upon the morrow, and Mannering granted his request in so far that he ordered one of the men to knock open one of the barrels of flour and to supply the cook's demands. The crew detailed to execute this modest order in connection with the destruction of the pirate vessel had not been gone a quarter of an hour when word came back that the hidden treasure had been found. Mannering hurried aboard the Eliza Cooper, and there, in the midst of the open flour-barrel, he beheld a great quantity of silver coin buried in and partly covered by the white meal. A systematic search was now made. One by one the flour-barrels were heaved up from below and burst open on the deck, and their contents searched, and if nothing but the meal was found it was swept overboard. The breeze was whitened with clouds of flour, and the white meal covered the surface of the ocean for yards around. In all, upward of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars was found concealed beneath the innocent flour and meal. It was no wonder the pirate captain was so successful, when he could upon an instant's notice transform himself from a wolf of the ocean to a peaceful Quaker trader selling flour to the hungry towns and settlements among the scattered islands of the West Indies, and so carrying his bloody treasure safely into his quiet northern home. 
In concluding this part of the narrative, it may be added that a white strip of canvas painted black was discovered in the hold of the Eliza Cooper. Upon it, in great white letters, was painted the name The Bloodhound. Undoubtedly, this was used upon occasions to cover the real and peaceful title of the trading schooner, just as its captain had, in reverse, covered his sanguine and cruel life by a thin sheet of morality and respectability. This is the true story of the death of Captain Jack Scarfield. The Newburyport chapbook, of which I have already spoken, speaks only of how the pirate disguised himself upon the ocean as a Quaker trader. Nor is it likely that anyone ever identified Eliezer Cooper with the pirate, for only Mannering, of all the crew of the Yankee, was exactly aware of the true identity of Captain Scarfield. All that was ever known to the world was that Eliezer Cooper had been killed in a fight with the pirates. In a little less than a year, Mannering was married to Lucinda Fairbanks. As to Eliezer Cooper's fortune, which eventually came into the possession of Mannering through his wife, it was many times a subject of speculation to the lieutenant how it had been earned. There were times when he felt well assured that a part of it, at least, was the fruit of piracy, but it was entirely impossible to guess how much more was the result of legitimate trading. For a little time it seemed to Mannering that he should give it all up, but this was at once so impracticable and so quixotic that he presently abandoned it, and in time his qualms and misdoubts faded away, and he settled himself down to enjoy that which had come to him through his marriage. In time the Mannerings removed to New York, and ultimately the fortune that the pirate Scarfield had left behind him was used in part to found the great shipping-house of Mannering and Bigot, whose famous transatlantic packet-ships were in their time the admiration of the whole world. End of chapter 7 And end of section 16